0: I'm Christian Weishart and this is Examining Ethics brought to you by the Janet Prendel Institute for Ethics at DePaul University. We're talking about the ethics of talking about ethics today on the show. With me to discuss moral discourse is Brandon Warmke, who has co-written a book called Moral Grandstanding: The Use and Abuse of Moral Talk. He argues that discussions about morals and ethics are valuable social resources.
1: It's how we solve problems, it's how we identify who's to be trusted, who's not to be trusted, it's how we uh, alert other people to injustices, it's, it's a crucial way for us to live life together and to make the world a better place.
0: Stay tuned for my interview with Brandon Warmke on today's episode of Examining Ethics. I'm what you might call an avid social media lurker, if it's even possible to be an avid lurker. I don't reply to Twitter threads, I don't use the duet feature on TikTok, I do that thing that probably terrifies sociologists and psychologists, and I just scroll, 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 reading and watching and listening to what people are saying about politics and culture and kittens. In the last few years, I've noticed that people are more and more apt to make bold pronouncements, announcing their take on this issue or that one. And that's part of what keeps me scrolling. I like hearing other people's views on things, and sometimes I appreciate it when those views are laid out clear as crystal. I didn't really think to question these bold statements, that is, until I spoke with our guest today. Brandon Warmke has written a book that examines this recent turn towards big, unapologetic statements. He's a philosopher at Bowling Green State University, and with Justin Tosi has co-written a book called Moral Grandstanding. The Use and Abuse of Moral Talk. In it, they explore the way people talk about morality on social media, in the news, and in other spaces. I spoke with Brandon in April of 2020. I do just want to note that we are recording this in an odd time, so I do want to note the date. It's April 8th, and we are recording this in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. I think your book is, it seems like it, it could be pretty relevant for thinking through some, some moral issues around the coronavirus. Um, but before we get started on any of that, I just wanted you to give me, just give me a super quick definition of moral grandstanding. We can get into the details later.
1: Moral grandstanding is the use of public discourse for self-promotion. So people who engage in grandstanding are using their discussion of morality and politics to try to impress people with their moral qualities. Um, They treat public discourse as a kind of vanity project. So they might get on Twitter or on Facebook, or you can imagine politicians in a stump speech trying to impress upon people how much they care about family values or about the poor. Moral grandstanders are people who use public discourse as a way to gain social status.
0: Once you read your your summary at the beginning of your book, you can start to see it everywhere. Um, So I thought maybe we could do something a little fun, which is you could give me an example of moral grandstanding on the fly maybe. You and your co-author, you try to differentiate between moral grandstanding, which you seem to think is kind of bad or harmful, and moral talk, which you say can be good and productive. So I'm gonna give you a headline, And I want you to tweet back at us an example of a moral talk response to that headline and then a grandstanding response to that headline. So the headline, and this is from the New York Times, this is from early April 2020, 28 Texas students have coronavirus after spring break trip.
1: It's very hard to discern whether someone is grandstanding simply by looking at what they say. The reason is because an essential part of grandstanding is a desire or a motivation. And those things are in your head. And those things are, are not often, always, certainly transparent to people when they're simply looking at what you write. So in this respect, we compare grandstanding to things like bragging or lying or demagoguery, where each of those phenomena you know, require some kind of mental state, like a desire seeking to impress someone. And so it's possible for the very same sentence to be say tweeted. In one case, it could be grandstanding. In another case, it could be something else, just simply a, a, an innocent contribution to moral discourse. And again, similarly with lying, right? So I could say something and it could be a lie and you could say the exact same thing and it would be not a lie for you, right? So all that being said, as a bit of like uh, background, it's very hard to identify grandstanding just by looking at it. Okay, so back to the challenge here. So someone might say something like, oh, this is really, this is really unfortunate. You know, I, I, um, these people are, are potentially spreading illnesses that will affect their parents and grandparents. It's a very milquetoast and boring moral statement, but I think it qualifies as something like moral talk, like, oh, this is, this is a bad thing maybe they don't know this, Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe they are to be blamed for this behavior. Grandstanding, let's see. Someone might say something like, I am absolutely disgusted that these millennials have so little regard for their elders that they would prioritize having fun over family values, do better. That might be grandstanding.
0: How the heck are we supposed to tell the difference between grandstanding and moral talk?
1: Justin Tosi and I have paired up with a psychologist, Joshua Grubbs. We've embarked on a large research, empirical research project on grandstanding. So, you know, we have pretty good evidence, empirical evidence, that people do use public discourse to self-promote. So we know it happens. We also know it's very or can be um, very difficult to identify it. And so this, this leaves us in. Uh, a messy situation. Not every contribution to moral discourse and moral talk, we use the term moral talk just to pick out, you know, people discussing morality and politics, what's right and wrong, um, who should be blamed, who should be praised, um, who are the good people, who are the bad people. Moral discourse is an extremely valuable social resource. It's how we solve problems. It's how we identify who's to be trusted, who's not to be trusted. It's how we alert other people to injustices. It's, it's a crucial way for us to live life together and to make the world a better place. And in our view, moral grandstanding is, an, is a way to abuse that tool. It, it turns this protective instrument into, and it perverts it and distorts it into a vanity project. It, it dilutes the power, and it dilutes the force of moral discourse by making it something that is about the speaker. And, Yes, grandstanding is hard to detect. And in a way, it should be hard to detect because grandstanders, the way that they're successful is by saying things that leave them plausible deniability. If you just came out and said in public discourse, I'm the most enlightened person here, everyone listen to me, no one's going to be taken in by the act, right? So grandstanding is a bit like humble bragging because it it cloaks this egoistic, self-interested behavior in moral language that's um, makes it look like people are seriously concerned for others. So there's a kind of deception involved in grandstanding. Um, and this is why grandstanding is often hard to detect, because people are using this indirect language to induce people to believe things about them.
0: What I, I struggled while I was reading your book because I just kept thinking, yeah, what's the harm? You know, what's the harm in using a rhetorical flourish here, um, some strong words there? Um, but then I, the more I thought about it, I thought, well, that's, that's the ethics question, right? Like what harm does grandstanding do? Yeah,
1: I, mean, I, I, think your reaction is a, is a common and understandable reaction. And I think many people respond to grandstanding as sort of like, well, it's a, it's a, okay, maybe it's a little bad, but it's mostly innocuous and people who complain about it are the really bad people, right? It's the people who are accusing people of grandstanding. It's people like me and Tosi who are writing books about grandstanding. Like we're, we're the really bad guys. We describe grandstanding as, as a quiet poison. It's quiet because you don't often see it. You don't. It doesn't often. It's not easily de- detectable, but it's it's n- no less poisonous. One of the one of the chapters in the book is on is on the the social harms or the or the social consequences of grandstanding. So one of the harms of grandstanding is, we argue that it's it's polarization. So if you think about how a lot of grandstanding works, it's a it's a it, it functions as a kind of moral arms race or a moral one-upsmanship. So, and it, this has to do with certain psychological ingredients that have to do with trying to impress other people. So, if I think of myself as caring deeply for the poor, and you announce that you that you support a $15 minimum wage, right? Then, if it's really important to me that people think of me as caring deeply for the poor, and I want other people to think the same, I have two options. I can either Be quiet, and let them think that you really care about the poor, or I can chime in and out and try to outdo you, and I can say if you really cared about the poor, you'd be supportive of a twenty-dollar minimum wage, right? And you can imagine this sort of dynamic playing out over and over again in on both sides of 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 the political aisle, and so you you know when it comes to gun control, when it comes to immigration, when it comes to same-sex marriage, you know whatever the issue, you can imagine there's a kind of push towards the extremes to outdo one another. In some of our empirical evidence, we found that that the people who grandstand the most are the most politically polarized. And so there's some evidence that grandstanding is actually pushing people apart. And this happens because of these psychological dynamics at play and and trying to convince other people that you're morally uh, impressive. Now, you might think that that polarization is not a big problem and that moving to extreme views is not a problem. I mean, extreme views aren't false, right? Just because they're extreme. Think about it this way. Grandstanding in a moral arms race is not a reliable way to discover what's true. If people were actually taking more extreme views because they were convinced by argument or empirical evidence or something, that would be reason to think, well, maybe polarization at least on one side is not that bad because they're quote-unquote polarizing because of evidence. But what happens in grandstanding is the, the mechanism is not pointed at truth, it's pointed at impressing people. So the incentives are to arrive at beliefs such that moving any more to the extreme would stop impressing people. And so um, Grandstanding is not what we would describe as a truth sensitive or truth tracking mechanism. It's not not a reliable way of discovering the truth. So to put those two points together, grandstanding causes polarization. Grandstanding driven polarization is not a reliable way of arriving at the truth. So in our view, what's happening, at least in lots of quarters of online discourse, is you have people on both sides polarizing and polarizing for not, rational reasons right the reasons having to do with impressing people and so that's going to make governing hard it's going to make compromise difficult um, and it's going to give us a bunch of false beliefs about about morality and politics um so we think grandstanding because of these subtle psychological mechanisms that occur in discourse is is, is going to have this effect
0: for me i'll just give i'll just give an example for myself which is that you know like i said i'm i lurk a lot on twitter and a lot of times, the more radical statements and the more uncomfortable they make me feel, a lot of times that that kind of guides me, you know, embracing that discomfort or at least examining that discomfort. That kind of guides me into a what I hope is a more nuanced <laughs> view. Right? Um, it helps me kind of sort out the gray areas. What's the harm in 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 something being polarizing or um, discomfort causing?
1: One harm is is, would be if the polarization was leading people to have false beliefs or to hold beliefs not on the basis of good evidence. So if you think of the mechanism of, of grandstanding driven polarization as simply being or largely being publicly adopting views that other people are impressed by, that's not a, you know, I don't want to live in a society. Uh, where our politicians or our, our journalists or our, you know, the huge accounts on Twitter are adopting, adopting moral and political views because they think it's going to impress people. That would be a big harm. Now, now the thing that you, you mentioned is, well, look, seeing these extreme views is good because they help me think through my own views. And on that, I absolutely agree. I mean, This is in a way a a point that John Stuart Mill makes, um, 19th century philosopher uh, in his um, little book on liberty. He says, it's important to see a diverse set of views. He says it strengthens your own view of the truth. If you have the truth, you can see more vividly why your beliefs are true in light of other views, um, maybe even really extreme wild false views. But he also says that, and I think this is what you have in mind. He says being exposed to these very different views is good for us because it, we might have to give up our own views for what for views that we think are, are better. Now, what Mill has in mind there is something like, well, I should consider these other views because they could be true, or they might have evidence, um, or that I might have false beliefs that I haven't based on sufficient evidence. That I I absolutely agree with. I think that's a very nice way of putting the thought and the, the value of seeing extreme views. What Justin and I worry about is the extent to which people take positions in public and there's empirical evidence. I mean, we, we know that people endorse views in public that they don't actually believe. Um, and they do this to avoid social sanction. They, they do it to avoid embarrassment and they do it to project an image of themselves. What we worry about is people on social media taking views, endorsing positions. Um, A, that they don't really believe, and B, whether they believe it or not, doing it largely because they think people will be impressed by it. That, we think, is not the kind of society we'd want to live in.
0: You said that you had um, a couple of other harms that come from grandstanding.
1: So one of them is a a kind of cynicism about moral discourse. There's a kind of boy-crying-wolf effect going on here. So when you discover that people engage in public discourse, that lots of people are trying to make themselves look good. I mean, we know that people brag, we know that people humble brag, it's nothing new. Once you see that this is what people are out to do, I think it's very easy to become cynical about public discourse. Because you look at what's going on and you say, these people don't care. They don't really care about the truth. They don't really care about compromise. They don't really care about the public good. Um, they don't really care at arriving at what the, a nuanced position about rent control. They just want to gain social status. They want to seek prestige. They want to dominate their rivals and humiliate them. Um, they want to use outrage to, to look good and feel good. And once you see that, you think public discourse is just a nasty place of people trying to impress others, and I don't want a part of it. So we had this very important resource, public discourse. And you have people using it for selfish ends. So one worry is just that once a discourse is saturated with grandstanding, people realize this and they check out. We don't want people to be um, across the board cynical about public discourse, because as I, you know, as I mentioned earlier, it's a really viable resource. I mean, this is how we solve problems. And the more people who check out, the more people who t- don't take these conversations seriously, that's bad. Okay. The third thing is what we call outrage exhaustion. And the idea is that a lot of grandstanding does involve excessive excessive emotional reports or displays, like I'm absolutely sickened, right? Or I am disgusted. And so a lot of what we know about how outrage is expressed in public discourse from the, the, the psychologist, we know that people express outrage to alleviate guilt we know that people express outrage to make themselves feel good. Um, a couple of philosophers, Tina Nguyen and Becca Williams, have a nice paper called "Moral Outrage Porn," in which they argue, and there's there's empirical evidence for this too, that people express outrage because it feels good. Okay, so we know. And then, you know, this other thing we know is that people express outrage because it's a reliable signal of moral conviction. You know, grandstanders can exploit this signal and basically say. I'm an extremely morally sensitive person, right? I have lots of important, important moral convictions and lots of things outrage me. The problem is uh, what we call outrage exhaustion. There's, there's two parts of the problem. One is um, we dilute the signal that outrage sends, right? So if 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 I get as angry about what Oberlin College is serving in their dining hall or what you know halloween costumes or you know if i get outraged that that we can't have the 10 commandments in the uh, you know in a, in a park if i get as outraged as those things as i do about world historic injustices then i've diluted the signal that my outrage, that my outrage sends right i I've, I've simply communicated to people that i have i have one setting and that's 11 and my outrage is 11 for everything. And so there's no differentiation between the things that are really worth getting outraged about and the things that are you know, maybe less important. When you use outrage to feel good, when you use outrage to impress other people, um, you, you lose a sense of uh, being able to muster the outrage when it's really called for, right? So if you're, if you're using outrage for things like the promotion of your, of your reputation, I mean, we know that the way emotions work, it's it's going to be harder to muster the outrage when it's when it's really called for. So, but you know, our view is the outrage is really important. I mean, we're not we're not anger deniers or anger skeptics. Outrage is a really reliable signal. But when everything is a is a is a condition or source for outrage, you dilute that signal.
0: A lot of moral grandstanding, as you as you know, takes place on social media, um, and it takes place in um, something called the attention economy, right? Where it's really hard to get your content or your words or your pictures noticed these days. Is somebody blameworthy for taking part in that, right? If if I really care about public health, wouldn't it be a good idea for me to like signal myself as somebody who cares a lot about public health?
1: There's a couple of issues there. So one is the, is the attention economy. And I think you're right. Um, I think uh, I joined Twitter, I guess it was like the fall of 2000 or December, 2018. So I knew I had this book coming out and I was like, well, it's time to the, the irony is it's like, it's time to self promote. So it's time to promote the book. And I real and I was like, well, I need to get a bunch of followers now. So I got to promote the book. Right. And what I discovered pretty early on is that if you're pretty boring and milk toast, like no one cares and I, and i think you know the way to get attention on twitter one way to get attention there's lots of ways but one of them is is excess is to be excessive right is to is to get it is to stand out you have something to sell you've got a point to make you want people to listen to you have a hot take so what's wrong with that well again so let's think about public discourse as a kind of resource it's a, it's a common resource that we all have in common you know think about like a park or a pasture that, that, we, that we all share, that, that we want to protect. To protect that public resource, we all have to sort of sublimate our own, to some extent, sublimate our own selfish desires or uses of that resource so that we protect it for everyone. Um, so if I'm out there using public discourse in ways that are not protective of of the public good for everyone. I'm in a way degrading the value of that resource for everyone else. I'm, I'm making it less valuable for everyone else. So you know, your, your question was why are people blameworthy who abuse this resource? I, I think, I think one, one reason, one way to think about it is they are, they are privileging themselves in a context in which the right thing to do many times is to protect the resource for everyone, right? So I, mean, I can't go around just doing whatever's always best for me. You sublimate your own desires for the good of other people. And we think this is just a, a feature of civic virtue. You know, people, who, people who have civic virtue um, prioritize the, the public good over their own. How, how is it possible to have a productive moral conversation
0: in the attention economy?
1: What we want is to instill a belief in people, uh, instill in people a way of thinking about public discourse that follows certain kinds of norms. Here's a norm we argue for in the book. Don't use public discourse for self-promotion. Make it embarrassing to do anything that might look like grandstanding. If you can figure out how to get people to think differently about public discourse, then we have a shot. But it might be that if people are entering discourse largely to seek status, we don't have a chance. The the key is to change norms to get people to think differently about how, how they contribute. That this is not about this is not about me. And another way to do it is to change norms so that the way to get status is to be nuanced and careful and boring, you know, <laughs> you know but but that's you know that's hard to imagine.
0: Yeah, and so I get, I mean, my next question was, if we want to avoid grandstanding, how can we do that?
1: A couple things we, we, we recommend in the book, engineer your situations. I mean, one of the findings of 20th century psychology that's pretty robust is that situations play a large role in our behavior. And so if we are able to identify the situations in which we know we are going to be tempted to prove to other people how good we are, try to set ourselves up for success before that that temptation becomes overwhelming, so that might mean limiting your time online. It might mean one one trick I I use too much is I, I'll type something, and then I'll save it as a draft, right? Or I'll just walk away, and then I I won't. Then I'll come back fifteen minutes later and just eh, whatever I'm, I won't post that, right? So there's just you know you can sort of rearrange your situation such that it's more conducive to making good choices. Another thing we suggest is. Look, this recognition desire that you mentioned, which is is part of grandstanding that we want to seek status and want to impress others, the thought is that we can redirect that desire to more, more productive ends. And so we don't think it's wrong to want to have status. And so one question is, well, how do we more productively satisfy that desire for status? And so if... If people really are out for social status and to make themselves look good morally, there are ways to do that that are more productive than cheap talk online, which is like, you know, if you really want to people want people to be impressed, like go to a soup kitchen and like take a photo of yourself, like at the soup kitchen and post it online. At least, you know, at least that way if you're getting if you're getting kudos for it, you've also done something good, right? I mean, overall you're probably doing more good than just some cheap talk online. So, there are lots of people who can use our help. Um, and if what, what's really important to us is, um, is the reputation and status, at least we can sort of redirect that desire to more productive ends. The other thing that we recommend is just to encourage people to think of moral discourse as a, as a resource and, and to think about, like, are we, are we pouring toxic poison into it or are we actually using it for productive ends? Why do you care about this? I'll I'll answer with a short story. Justin Tosi, my co-author, and I, we started working on this project in about 2014. And we both noticed in being online, it would, would appear to us to be like a shift in how people treated public discourse. And it looked to us like there was just a lot of nasty talk. And a lot of this nastiness seemed to be self-serving. And I think a lot of people then and now, think of public discourse, they think of moral talk as kind of like magic. Like as long as you're wrapping up your selfishness or your dominance of other people, as long as you're wrapping it in a kind of moral veneer, then anything goes. And I think what, what really concerns Justin and I is that this is not what morality is for. Morality is not to... And Nietzsche pointed this out. I mean, this is a this is a tradition that goes back. I mean, I think Jesus says things like this. Nietzsche clearly says things like this. Like, one thing he thought was that morality is not a convenient way to dominate others, to exercise what he called your will to power. So, so for us, it's a it's a concern about morality itself. That that people seem to think that morality offers an excuse a means to satisfy their will to power, satisfy their desires for social status. And so we think it's not just an abusive moral talk, but more broadly, it's abusive morality. That's not what morality is for, right? Morality is not, it's it's not there to make yourself look good. It's not there to dominate and humiliate other people because you enjoy seeing them, you know, um, brought low. That's not what morality is for. Now, what is morality for? Well, that's a difficult question, but I think for us, what, what motivates at least Malai, and I'll, I'll, since he's not here, I'll speak for him. I think what, what really concerns us is a broader question about how morality is viewed. We don't think that morality should be used in, in certain ways. That's just not an appropriate use of morality. And we all suffer when, when we treat morality that way.
0: If you want to know more about moral grandstanding or our guest's other work, check out our show notes page at examiningethics.org. The Prindle Institute for Ethics also produces a podcast called Getting Ethics to Work. You can find it at prindleinstitute.org backslash Work or wherever you find your podcasts. Examining Ethics is hosted by the Janet Prindle Institute for Ethics at DePaul University. Christian Weishart wrote and produced the show with editorial assistance from Sandra Burton. Our logo was created by Evie Brogius. Our music is by Blue Dot Sessions and can be found online at sessions.blue. Examining Ethics is made possible by the generous support of DePaul alumni, friends of the Prindle Institute, and you, the listeners. Thank you for your support. The views expressed here are the opinions of the individual speakers alone. They do not represent the position of DePaul University or the Prindle Institute for Ethics.